and turn to the book of 2 Kings. If you find your Old Testament, get past Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, you'll get into 2 Kings if you have one of our church Bibles. That's on page 289. 289, 2 Kings chapter 5. I will read from verse 1 down to verse 14. So if you find 2 Kings in the large number 5 on the page, that's the chapter heading. And you cast your eye there, you can follow along as I read. This is what Holy Scripture says. Naaman, commander of the army of the king of Syria, was a great man with his master and in high favor because by him the Lord had given victory to Syria. He was a mighty man of valor, but he was a leper. Now the Syrians on one of their raids had carried off a little girl from the land of Israel and she worked in the service of Naaman's wife. She said to her mistress, Would that my Lord were with the prophet who is in Samaria. He would cure him of his leprosy. So Naaman went in and told his Lord, Thus and so spoke the girl from the land of Israel. And the king of Syria said, Go now, and I will send a letter to the king of Israel. So he went, taking with him ten talents of silver, 6,000 shekels of gold, and 10 changes of clothing. And he brought the letter to the king of Israel, which read, when this letter reaches you, know that I have sent to you Naaman, my servant, that you may cure him of his leprosy. And when the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his clothes and said, Am I God to kill and to make alive that this man sends word to me to cure a man of his leprosy? Only consider and see how he is seeking a quarrel with me. But when Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes, he sent to the king saying, Why have you torn your clothes? Let him come now to me that he may know that there is a prophet in Israel. So Naaman came with his horses and chariots and stood at the door of Elisha's house. And Elisha sent a message, messenger to him saying, Go and wash in the Jordan seven times and your flesh shall be restored and you shall be clean. But Naaman was angry and went away saying, Behold, I thought that he would surely come out to me and stand and call upon the name of the Lord his God and wave his hand over the place and cure the leper. Are not Abana and Farpar, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? Could I not wash in them and be clean? So he turned and went away in a rage. But his servants came near and said to him, My father, it is a great word the prophet has spoken to you. Will you not do it? Has he actually said to you, wash and be clean? So he went down and dipped himself seven times in the Jordan, according to the word of the man of God. And his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child, 
and he was clean. This is the word of the Lord. Second Kings chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. And we will be spending some time looking at the passage together this morning. Second Kings chapter 5 and verse 1. If you have one of our church Bibles, that's on page 289. And as we look at the passage today, I'd like to introduce you to a big and mighty man. A big and mighty man who lived around 2,500 years ago in the land of Syria. That's a nation just to the north of Israel. This man's name is Naaman. And at the time we meet him here in the book of 2 Kings, he's one of the heroes of his generation. He's one of the great warriors. He's one of the great military commanders of that time. He's a kind of man who has everything he's ever wanted. There's just one problem. He also has one thing he never wanted, one thing he dreaded. So we read in 2 Kings chapter 5 and verse 1, Naaman, commander of the army of the king of Syria, was a great man with his master and in high favor, because by him the Lord had given victory to Syria. He was a mighty man of valor, but he was a leper. This morning I want us to spend some time getting to know this man Naaman. I want to see a, a big man and a little girl and the contrast between them. Then I want us to see a faithless king and a faithful prophet and the contrast between them. And best of all, I want us to see a kind and powerful God. I want us to see a powerful God who loves to heal those who are broken and who are wounded and who are diseased. First, we need to see that big man and that little girl. Naaman is introduced to us as this big and powerful man. Just in verse 1, we learn that he is a commander in the army. We learn that he is great, that he is in favor, that he is mighty, that he's known for his valor, for his great deeds. Seems like everything is going his way. Everything except for that one little word that comes at the very end of his bio. He is a leper. When the Bible speaks of leprosy, it can refer to quite a number of different diseases, but whatever he has, it's a skin disease. It's a condition that's embarrassing, that's visible. Most likely it's disfiguring and even fatal. It's the kind of disease that evokes fear and horror in other people. They stay away because they're afraid they could catch it too. It causes people to, to back off and leave you alone. And so I think the author is posing a question here. He's saying something like, it's great that you're, you're so valorous, Naaman, but what does valor really mean when your body is covered in these open, painful sores? It's great that you've got the admiration of all the people, that they love you and look up to you, but what does that really matter when they're afraid to even come near to you? And then, what will all that fame and all that money and all that reputation, what will that do for you when that disease finally claims the victory and you're laid in the grave? I think this should make you ponder as well. What will all your accomplishments do for you as you approach the very end of your life? If you've lived to be famous, what will that fame do for you in the moment you contract a, a fatal disease? 
So maybe thousands of people attend your funeral instead of just a few, but does that really give you any comfort? Or if you live to be rich, what will your money do for you in that day? Does it really matter if you're buried under a slab of marble or a slab of concrete? Either way, you're dead. Either way, you're buried in the ground. See, there's nothing at all wrong with accomplishments. It can be very good to be an accomplished person, but you need to ask, what will those actually do for you when you encounter illness? What will those accomplishments do for you as you approach death? What will they do for you as you pass from this life into whatever it is that comes next? The story introduces us to this big man and leaves these kinds of questions hanging. And then it introduces a little girl. Verse 2. Now the Syrians on one of their raids had carried off a little girl from the land of Israel. And she worked in the service of Naaman's wife. So at some point, the army of Syrian, led by Naaman, had raided Israel and carried off whatever they could capture, gold, silver, cattle, even people. So it might have happened something like this. This little Jewish girl was sitting in her family's home when she heard the sound of an army approaching and her father yelled at her, just run and hide. Heard the sound of a battle being fought outside, maybe heard the sound of her own parents pleading for their lives and then a soldier burst in and he found her and he snatched her up and he took her away. He took her off to a foreign land, to Syria, where she had no home, no family, no friends, no rights. And this little girl was forced to be a servant to this big and powerful man. Then one day, she hears people talking about this man's disease. She hears them talking about the fact that he has leprosy, and it triggers a memory in her mind. She remembers that back in Israel, people have been talking about the fact that God had raised up a prophet. She had heard them say that God was working through this prophet to do incredible things. So what should she do with this information? She could, of course, have been vindictive, right? To be mad at him. This was the man who kidnapped her. He led the army that kidnapped her. She could have just sat back and let him die. But she chooses instead to speak up. Verse 3, she said to her mistress, would that my Lord were with a prophet who's in Samaria, he would cure him of his leprosy. And so, this little girl loves her enemy. She acts in love toward this man who should be her enemy, and she tells him how to be cured. She tells him where he can go to be saved. And kids, I want you to think about this. I want you kids to think that that God loves to do big things even through little people. See, that little girl said, if only my boss would go and see the prophet, the prophet would be able to cure him. And maybe today a little girl needs to say something like, Grandpa, if you would only trust Jesus, he would save you from your sin. Maybe a little boy sees mom and dad worrying and fretting and afraid, and he needs to say, Mom and dad, you remember, God says he feeds even the birds. And if God feeds the birds, don't you think he'll take care of us? See, a small child is far wiser than an old man if that child knows God and the old man does not. The words of a little child have great power when that child is speaking about our great and mighty God. 
And then for all of us, I think there are times we feel like children, aren't there? Maybe our beliefs are being challenged by someone whose intellect or whose education is way beyond our own, and we can feel childless, childish in, in comparison. We can feel like little kids. But take comfort. If God can speak through a child, he can speak through you. Don't be afraid to speak. You have truth on your side, and you have God on your side. So you should never discount what God can do through people who seem so small and so weak and so simple. So we've seen a, a big man and a little girl. This is the, the author's way of introducing us into this story. Now we need to meet a faithless king and a faithful prophet. So what happens? Naaman's wife quickly rushes to her husband and she tells him what this girl has said. I would imagine Naaman thinks it's fairly unlikely that this little girl is right, but he's desperate. He's desperate enough to give it a try. But here's the thing. He can't just cross into Israel without causing a ruckus. Remember, this is the guy who's been snatching little children from that nation and then making them slaves. So he can't just walk into their towns and, and ask for a favor. So Naaman goes to his king, the king of Syria, and here's what he says. Verse 4, he says, thus and, spoke, thus and so spoke the girl from the land of Israel. He tells him what this girl said. He says, essentially, there's this kid in my home who says there's a guy in Israel who can cure me. And the king of Syria decides, well, I guess this miracle cure is worth a shot. This guy's my top general. He's won great victories for me. I love and trust him. Let's try and make this work. And so the king of Syria writes out a letter to the king of Israel. Look at verse 5. And the king of Syria said, Go now and I'll send a letter to the king of Israel. So he went, taking with him ten talents of silver, six thousand shekels of gold, and ten changes of clothing. We could say that is several million dollars. Verse 6. And Naaman brought the letter to the king of Israel, which read, When this letter reaches you, Know that I have sent to you Naaman, my servant, that you may cure him of his leprosy. And when the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his clothes and said, Am I God to kill and make alive that this man sends word to me to cure a man of his leprosy? Only consider and see how he's seeking a quarrel with me. Let me explain what's happening here. Essentially, the king of a very weak nation receives a letter from the king of a very strong nation, and that letter says, here's many millions of dollars. In return, I expect you to heal this guy of his leprosy. Well, the king of Israel knows he has no ability to cure anyone of anything. And so he assumes there's some kind of trickery going on here. He assumes that the king of Syria is actually trying to manufacture something that will put them at war. He's trying to spark some, some kind of an incident that will give him the good reason to attack Israel. So he's, he's afraid. He's terrified. And as a sign of his grief and his confusion, the king tears his clothes. That's a strange custom to us, but it's a very familiar one as you read the Bible. Back in those times, that was how you expressed confusion grief, sorrow. We need to meet that faithful prophet, but before we turn to him, let's just think about that faithless king. 
what should the king of Israel be doing at this point? He's in a scary situation. He's afraid. He's intimidated by a much stronger enemy. What might be a better response than shredding his clothes? He should be asking God for help, shouldn't he? Because even if Syria does intend to attack, even if there is some trickery going on here, hasn't God proven himself strong and able in the past? Hasn't he defeated enemies with greater odds than that? This is the God who destroyed an entire Egyptian army in the Red Sea. This is the God who flattened the walls of Jericho with a trumpet blast. This is the God who scared off the army of Midian with the sight of torches and the sound of breaking jars. He's proven in the past that he's willing, he's able to help his people. And so the king should be humbling himself in prayer instead of cowering in grief. The king should be tearing apart his pride rather than tearing apart his clothes. He should be trusting in the might of God rather than fearing the power of Syria. That makes me wonder, what's your instinct? What's your first instinct when times of trouble and times of uncertainty come? You probably don't tear your clothes apart, but do you tear your life apart through anxiety? Do you tear your joy apart through anger or through desperation or through acting out against God? Do you tear your faith apart by unbelief, by shaking a fist at God? One of the hardest but most important lessons we ever learn is to bring all of our cares to God. To go to God first, not last. It's to tell God your problems, to tell Him your fears and your sorrows, to submit all of this to Him, to His power, to His providence. And of course, to remember all His faithfulness to you in the past. We just sang about that. God will give you what you need to endure your sorrows well. He'll give you what you need even to emerge unbroken, to emerge victorious through those trials. God is so willing, so eager to help. Well, in contrast to that faithless king, we need to see a faithful prophet. Verse 8. But when Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes, he sent to the king saying, why have you torn your clothes? Let him come to me that he may know that there's a prophet in Israel. So Elisha, he sees that the king is behaving like a faithless coward, so he decides he better take over the situation. He says, let Naaman come to me that he may know there's a prophet in Israel. Now why does Naaman need to know that there's a prophet in Israel? What good would that do him? Well, if there's a prophet in Israel, it means there's a God in Israel. Because where a prophet is speaking, God is speaking. Where a prophet is acting, God is acting. So Elisha, he sees an opportunity here. He sees an opportunity to display the power of God. Verse 9, so Naaman came with his horses and chariots and stood at the door of Elisha's house. It's maybe kind of fun to picture this one. You can assume Elisha had a fairly small house, and yet here comes this big group of people all marching together, soldiers and 
uh, officials all marching together and stopping outside his little home. And then probably somebody announces, the mighty Naaman is here. And he steps off his chariot and he's wearing his robes and looking all proud. And he stands there waiting. Waiting for, of course, this prophet to come out and maybe to bow to him and to greet him and to heal him. That's not exactly how it goes, though. Verse 10. And Elisha sent a messenger to him. Elisha doesn't go himself. He doesn't even get off the couch. He just sends this mere servant to Naaman. And his servant passes along a message. He says to Naaman, go and wash in the Jordan seven times and your flesh shall be restored and you will be clean. How does Naaman receive this instruction? Not very well. He is furious. Verse 11, but Naaman was angry and went away saying, behold, I thought that he would surely come out to me and stand and call upon the name of the Lord his God and wave his hand over the place and cure the leper. Are not Abana and Farpar, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? Couldn't I wash in them and be clean? So he turned and he went away in a rage. Okay, two questions. Why does Elisha send a servant instead of going himself? And second, why does Naaman get so angry when this happens? Well, to the first question, Elisha is making a point. He wants to make absolutely sure, certain, that Naaman knows that when healing comes, it's the work of God and not the work of a man. It's the work of God, not the work of Elisha. Now, if you ever see a faith healer on TV or you see a faith healer on YouTube, and to be clear, I don't recommend that you do, I guarantee you will not see him expressing that kind of humility. I also guarantee he won't actually heal you, but he will make a big show of it. He'll tell you that you're healed, and he'll make a big production. He'll wave his hands and maybe speak some gibberish tongue, and he'll push you over. He'll make absolutely certain that he is front and center the whole time, that all eyes are on him. See, faith healers, Benny Hinn, he wants to heal you on stage, so he receives the glory and the money, of course. Elisha wants this man to be healed in isolation so that it's clear God receives all the glory. No praise to Elisha, all praise to God. So the first question, why does Elisha send a servant instead of going himself? So no one can be confused who is the healer. So no one will be tempted to give Elisha the glory. Second question, Why does Naaman get so angry? So angry when a servant is sent and a servant tells him, just go dip yourself in the Jordan River seven times. Well, in part, his pride is wounded. He's affronted. He's embarrassed by the way he's being treated that a mere servant, a mere messenger would come and give him that message. Maybe you can imagine that one Sunday a bigwig Hollywood celebrity or athlete sends a note to the church and he says, I'd like to worship here on Sunday. Sunday morning comes around and he rolls up to the front of this building in a big old stretched SUV and his security people help him step down and he strolls to the front front door of the school and he gets the same greeting as everyone else. Case shakes his hand and says a warm hello. Victoria gives him a bulletin and leads him to a seat and tells him to shove over to free up some room for other people. (laughs) 
He doesn't even get the best seats. Those are for Marion and for Rhonda. They, they've earned them through long lives and godly character. So that celebrity gets treated no differently than anyone else. I don't think it's hard to imagine that he would get angry about that. Why would he get angry? Because people usually treat him like his fame, like his power, like all the awards he's received, like all of that elevate him above the rest of us. But when he walks into this church, or any church, he's just another sinner in need of grace. He is no more, no less significant than any one of us. So Naaman was angry. He was not being treated like the VIP. He was certain he was. And then I think he was also angry at the solution that was offered to him. Elisha's servant said, go dip yourself on the Jordan River seven times and you'll be clean, you'll be cured. That's all he had to do. Turns out Naaman isn't much of a fan of the Jordan River. Uh, he knows there's much nicer rivers in his own country and Really, if it was as simple as dipping in a river, he could have saved a lot of time and bother and just done that in his own backyard. And so Naaman, he's angry, he's embarrassed, he's affronted, he's muttering under his breath, he storms off and just concludes, this has been a total waste of my time. I've seen a lot of people show interest in the Christian faith over the years. They often listen very respectfully as they're told about humanity's problem with sin, right? We say, we do bad things. And he goes, yeah, I've, I've done some bad things. They continue to listen to, with interest as you talk about Jesus dying for our sins. What a great man. What a great man that he would die for someone like me. And maybe they've said then, well, what would I need to do to become a Christian? And you say, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And often they've responded like Naaman. They might not have gotten so angry, but they, they scoffed, or they rolled their eyes, or they just kind of walked away. They weren't interested anymore. Why is that? Well, that's because grace, grace is so offensive to people. It's because they, were, they expected they would be told they had to earn their salvation. And really, they wanted to earn their salvation. They wanted to be told they should work hard for it, that they should earn it on their own terms. They didn't want to receive it by grace. They wanted to earn it by works. They wanted their salvation to be deserved instead of undeserved. And so, instead of accepting Christ, they rejected Christ. See, I think if Elisha had told Naaman to do something really hard and really heroic, he would have done it, right? If he had said, climb a mountain or swim the sea or fight a dragon or something, he would have been glad to do that. But he was told to do something simple, counterintuitive. You can't earn this. This can only be a gift. This can only come by grace. But Naaman didn't like the solution, and so he stormed off, stormed off in a rage. And by rights, that should be the end of the story, right? Naaman goes back to Syria, and he dies of leprosy, the end. But thankfully, even though Naaman storms off, he can't storm beyond the reach of God. I wonder how many of you at first stormed away from God, but found that you couldn't outrun him. 
or how many of you tried to run away from God but found that He patiently, gently sought you out and drew you back. See, God has a plan for Naaman. God loves Naaman. He's not going to let him get away. So added to our big man and our little girl and our faithless king and our faithful prophet, we need to meet a kind and powerful God. Verse 13. But his servants came near to him and said, My father, it is a great word the prophet has spoken to you. Will you not do it? Has he actually said to you, wash and be clean? What's happening here is Naaman's servants appeal to him by breaking it down so it's really simple. You've got a bad disease. This man has offered a solution. Don't you think you should at least try it? Just try it. And wisely, Naaman listens to his servants. Verse 14, so he went down and dipped himself seven times in the Jordan according to the word of the man of God, and his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child, and he was clean. So God works a miracle. This kind God displays his power by healing Naaman from his disease. And this kind God shows his mercy. It's mercy because Naaman has done absolutely nothing to deserve this. In fact, he was an enemy of God. He was an enemy of God's people. Yet God reached out to him and God healed him. It's worth asking, what does Naaman need to do to be healed? What does he need to do to be saved from his leprosy. I'm sure he's taken all sorts of pills and tried all sorts of lotions and endured all kinds of treatments. In the end, what finally is effective? What works? First, he has to believe the word that was spoken to him. Even though the instruction seems so simple, he has to hear it. He has to believe it. Second, he has to humble himself. He has to step down from his chariot He has to take off all the symbols of his power and might, and he has to walk into a very ordinary river. If he's going to be cured, it'll take belief instead of doubt, and it will take humility instead of pride. And then third, it will take obedience instead of defiance. He has to wash. It's not enough to look at the water not enough to dabble in the water, not enough to just splash around in the water. He has to do exactly what he's been told. He has to dunk himself under the water seven times. Seven, which you know in the Bible represents completion and perfection. And when he has fully obeyed, he is fully cured. When he emerges that seventh time, he's a whole new man. The text says, his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child, and he was clean." almost like he was reborn. He goes into the water scarred and scabbed and disfigured. He emerges from the water healed and restored and unblemished. God works a miracle. God saves Naaman from his disease. God displays his kindness and his power. So what did this account mean for the people of Israel thousands of years ago when it took place? And then when it was written out, we always need to ask that of a passage, right? What did it mean to them then before we can ask what should it mean to us now? Well, it proved to them then that the God who has the power to heal a body has the power to deliver his people from their enemies. He proved that right there. Don't be afraid. Look what I can do. Also, if we were to keep reading the story, we would see that Naaman becomes a worshiper of Israel's God, of Yahweh. 
So here God saves a man who's not only a foreigner, but also an enemy. He's proving that his salvation reaches across national boundaries. It reaches across ethnic boundaries. This was God's plan all along. So this was history, a true story that really took place around 2,500 years ago, but it was history that meant to serve God's people, to bless God's people, to instruct them and encourage them. Then as we wrap up, we also need to ask this then, what should this account mean to you? Well, it can encourage you in those same ways, of course, that God is powerful, God is sovereign, can encourage you that God has his people in a host of places and nations and ethnicities. We praise God for that. We get to see it right here in this room week by week. If you're a Christian, you, sh- you should consider that just like God healed Naaman's body so it was cured and restored and unblemished, God does the same with your soul. When he saves you, he, he heals your soul. And of course, baptism is this beautiful picture of this. Buried with Christ in his death, raised to walk in new life. Diseased, restored, corrupted, renewed. All this beautiful symbolism bound up in that act of baptism. What a great work God has done in us to heal us from within. And then, whether you're a Christian or not, I think you should ponder this. What did Syria ever really do for Naaman? And what has this world ever really done for you? What has this world ever really given to you that delivers lasting satisfaction or that addresses your deepest needs? This world can give you fame, but fame is fleeting. We see it all the time. Celebrities raised up and then busted down. This world can give you money, but money is lost so easily. It comes and it goes This world can give you health and beauty, but you'll someday become as sick and weak as Naaman was. A few weeks ago when I was here, I told you about my friend who at that time had just a few days left to live. He was was a very successful man. He was very well known in the world of business. Major Christian organizations knew of him as well and asked him to be on their board of directors. He, He had so much. Some might say he, he had it all. You could look at his life and say, he's, he's got it all. But like Naaman, he also had that one thing he absolutely dreaded. He had a fatal disease. And as he came to his final days, I, I asked him, what are you learning? What's on your heart in these, your, your final days? Here's what he said. He said, I've learned that God wants me to be free of anything in this world. What I came in with is what I'll leave with. That's nothing, nothing but him, nothing but his mercy and grace. What a glorious shedding this has been. He said, I'm no longer a CEO, no longer any fancy title, no longer part of a board of directors. I'm just a man who has to submit to God's good and gracious will and be faithful to him. When you've stored up treasures in heaven, he said, it makes it so much easier to leave this world behind. This world gave my friend so much, so many truly good and wonderful things. But in the end, he left with absolutely none of it. But he did leave with his faith. He did leave with his Savior. 
he did leave with the strongest and the firmest hope of all. So what has this world ever done for you? And what hope does this world or the things within it, what does it offer you when it's time to leave, when you're called out of this world? Let's allow this account we've read today, let's allow it to remind us this world ultimately disappoints us. Let's allow it to remind us that the way to live a a fulfilled life on this side of the grave, the way to have hope for what comes after the grave, requires the same thing. See, just as Naaman needed to find a cure that came from outside himself and a cure that came from outside the borders of Syria, you need to look beyond yourself. You need to look beyond the borders of this world. And thank God there is one trustworthy guide for humanity that does come from outside of this world. It comes from the God who created this world. It's this. This book, this Bible is meant to teach you how to live here and now and how to have great, unshakable hope for what comes beyond here and now. The best life of all is the life that's committed to believing it and obeying it. This Bible tells you that Jesus Christ came from outside this world to save this world. Even though he's God, he became human to redeem humanity. And he offers salvation to anyone who will simply believe. And in his own way, Naaman shows you how. Like him, you need to hear and believe the word that is spoken to you. You need to set aside your desire to save yourself and instead just receive salvation as a gift of God's grace. And you need to obey God. You need to obey Him all the way. You need to obey Him now, today. God doesn't tell you to go to the Jordan River and dip yourself in it seven times. He tells you to repent and believe. To confess that you are a sinner. You've sinned against God. And to believe that Jesus died to save sinners, sinners like me and sinners like you. God doesn't tell you to try and try and try. He tells you to trust. Don't try to save yourself. Trust that God can save you, that God longs to save you, that God will save you. So why wouldn't you? It's as easy as believing. And if you do, If you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, you'll find your soul satisfied by something that can never, ever be taken from you, by God himself. If you do that, you'll find hope that extends far beyond this world and into all that lays beyond, the eternal ages beyond. And if you do, you will be as healed and blessed in your soul as Naaman was in his body. Amen. Let me pray.